So this one, we're going to do a few slides on this one, and then we're going to do, uh, I'm going to go, let's say, 10 minutes on this one, 10 minutes on the next one, and then from there on, it's Q&A. From there on, it's all you. So um, there are going to be microphones in the audience, and, and there will be questions and answers. Uh, here's my commitment to you. Uh, Three-minute answer. If I don't give it in three minutes, I don't know what I'm talking about. All right? You can time me and tell me when my time's up. And here's my, here's my request of you. A five-minute question is not a question. So my request of you is uh, 30 seconds uh, question. There, uh, you can, can set it up, but please. Uh, and I, if I were sharing the mic, I'd pull it away, but they're having it in the, in the audience, so you're, it's just on you. That's all I got to say about that. So I want to do this, uh, immunitizing the eschaton. Can we pull that up? What would a seminar be without big words? Uh, you don't have to spell it. There will be no quiz on that. Uh, just let you know. So immunitizing, let me give you that word and just tell you what it means. Um, if you say it's it, your birthday tomorrow, your birthday is imminent and if it's your birthday and you're expecting good stuff, that makes you happy. And so when you think about Jesus coming, there's going to be a turn of the age. and There's going to be a turn of what they call the eschaton. And so immunitizing the eschaton is a big fancy way of just saying, living your life as if heaven's in view and as if Jesus Christ is coming soon. Amen. So here is not the slides. Uh, but there they are. So some people tell you, uh, I went to Temple University, and they, uh, they, there's a book by Dewey. He's the founder of the American education system called The Common Faith. In the book, he said, it's okay for people to have religion just so long as it doesn't do anything in their life. If they believe in prayer or something, then that can be dangerous. This is the guy who founded the... The book was in 1929, 1930. Now you see the fruits of that in the American public education system. So here's a couple of guys. Oh, I said I would read this. Yes, I will. Click. On the one hand, uh, Henry O'Meyer uh, says that like revelation and stuff is dangerous, and then on the other hand, you have Gordon Fee. Click. Meyer says... Whenever there's historical trouble or troubled historians, philosophers, and theologians, scratch the surface and you'll likely find the apocalypse. That's to say the book of Revelation. Click. Almost 30 years ago, Gordon D. Fee was asked if he could consider going back into the pastorate. He made a statement that's been quoted many times since then. Here's what he said. No matter how long it would take, I would set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of itself as an, when he used the word eschatological community. In other words, living in the shadow of the coming of the Lord. Of course, we're all uh, the crazy person who thinks that they're a prophet or has the latest word and how the world's going to end in three weeks. Uh, I... Um, Remember one time uh, I had a visitor to my church who told me he was Jesus Christ. And uh, we drove him to his parents. Uh, actually, I had the assistant pastor uh, do that. So he asked crazy people, crazy people immunitize the eschaton, but then 
Crazy people do a lot of things. Well, then they may not be crazy. They just may be odd. People can be so taken with prophecy that they simply can make a fool of themselves. I remember uh, going to Hollywood and Vine. You know, where they have the stars in the sidewalk there. And uh, there was a group of Asian Christians with loudspeakers and flyers preaching about the corruption of America and the judgment to come, which... I think America, particularly that corner, America's pretty corrupt. And I do believe their judgment. Now, they were strange. I got to admit, they were strange. But so was the drummer guy beating a drum and the guy acting like a mannequin and a dozen other performers, not to mention the people who were watching them. What if the Bible speaks about a subject in such a way as to call its importance to us in glaring terms? Now, I believe in baptism. There are, there are a dozen overt verses on baptism in the epistles. Um, but, you know, communion, that's very important. And there's just a couple of references, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, and a couple other references. But there's one in ten verses pronounce that Jesus Christ is coming soon in the New Testament. Uh, so I, I, I understand you don't count verses to understand how important doctrines are. But on the other hand, if something's mentioned that much, it's not an unbiblical thing to immunitize the eschaton. There's a Lutheran scholar who is not Pentecostal at all. He's not, he does not believe that what we believe about the, this. He, the Lutheran church has flattened eschatology. And of course, there's a fear that we won't be holistic and that sort of thing. We all know people who go uh, to a prayer meeting but won't help their neighbor. I get that, but that number's pretty small. We're all heard the saying that they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Yet it was C.S. Lewis who pointed out that the opposite is true. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Some have countered, well, I just want to live a balanced life, live for God from time to time, you know, have me revive me, get rid of the clutter. I'll tell you what, if you immunitize the eschaton, it'll do just that. Uh, click to the next slide. Colossians 3, 4, and 5 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we'll also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death uh, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, uh, passion, um, evil desires, and so on. So uh, if I really believe Jesus is coming, it's going to help me live a balanced life. You say, well, I don't want to be a fanatic. I just want to be right with God, a life pleasing to them. Uh, but look at this. 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 2 and 3. Now we are the sons of God. Doth not yet appear, King James says, what we shall, but we know what we see him. We'll be like him, or we'll see him as he is. And he who has this hope purifies himself, even as he's pure. Amen. Amen. Someone struggling with pornography, someone struggling with internet addictions. You know what? Uh, if, you, if you see the world as it really is, if you understand how Jesus is truly coming back and, and that we're anticipating his coming, that changes things. Well, people say, look at those 
Those are not my issues. I really don't struggle with greed or pornography or that sort of wrong thoughts. Few issues with people close to me, but you know how they are. James chapter 5, verses uh, 7 and 9 says, Be patient, brethren, the coming of the Lord. Um, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it. Uh, be also patient. For the coming of the Lord draws near. Establish your hearts. And then it says, do not, oh, King James uses this word, grumble against one another. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. If I really thought Jesus was coming soon, would I be that sarcastic? Would I do that kind of thing? Amen. Uh, click the next side. Uh, Philippians 4 is a wonderful passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. This is Philippians 4.4. 4. Uh, but then in verse 5, it says, let your gentleness be known to all men, or let your moderation be known to all men, because the Lord is at hand. If I live my life with heaven in view, uh, it affects what I think. It affects how I speak to people. It affects uh, the level of meanness. And you say, well, they deserve that. Well, maybe they did. <laughs> but if Jesus is coming soon, well, then, you know, maybe that shouldn't be a big factor in those things. Amen. Uh, click to the next slide. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Uh, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Philippians 4, 7, click a couple more slides here. And the peace of God, because the Lord is at hand, because this is part of the controlling thing of this whole passage, because the Lord is at hand, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brother, Whatever things are true, whatever things are uh, noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, meditate on these things. Amen. I want to be ready when Jesus comes. To them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And not to me only, this crown, Paul said, but to all those also that love is appearing. Could you just praise the Lord with me and love him together? Lord, we love you, we praise you, we adore you, we exalt you. We lift up your name and praise you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to switch to the next uh, PowerPoint, um, and that one's called, I don't know, history or something like that. We sometimes think, I was on a... a Facebook deal with Brother Bernard, and the question came in, why are there so many differences in the UPC with prophecy? Why is that? And my response was like, well, there's really not. We argue over just a couple of little things. But when you realize that most of the rest of the church world are someplace else, and the language even that we use, they go like, well, what's that? What's, what's the rapture? They don't even know what a rapture is. And, and how did that happen? Well, I'm going to tell you that. And uh, that's what this is about. So uh, click. You can uh, talk about prophecy in very mysterious ways. You know, people say, well, I found the secret Bible code. If you read it backwards and multiply times four, you'll find out when Jesus is coming. Okay, so what is prophecy? 
Prophecy is just God telling a story. The same God who could tell you about creation is the same God who can tell you, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no death, sorrow, or crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Well, then why are there so many interpretations? Click. All right. Who sees uh, a bunny or there a bunny? Anyone see that? Okay. You see a duck? What's wrong with you? That's it's a, all I say, well, isn't it all a matter of perspective? How do you know which is right? Isn't it just people making stuff up? Well, as apostolics, we we have what's called uh, it's kind of a ruler, a yardstick. Okay, what is that ruler or yardstick? Click, I will tell you. Uh, the early church believed stuff. We call ourselves apostolic. What do we mean when we say we're apostolic? We mean what the early church believed and practiced, that's what we want to believe and practice. I'll say it again. What the early church believed and practiced, we want to believe and practice. Okay, so let me give you something you can do. So be, be like the early church. We often come up to people and we say, praise the Lord. Do you know they said something else? Here's what they said. And it, they said it coming. They said it going. Just like we say praise the Lord. It's kind of like aloha. You get there, aloha. You're leaving, aloha. Shalom. Hello. Shalom. Goodbye. Shalom. Whatever else you want it to mean. So this is what they would say. Earliest church said, Maranatha. They also greeted one with a little holy kiss. I'm not going to do that today. So just stick with the Maranatha, and that'll be the limits of what this is about. Maranatha was a prayer. It was a proclamation. It was a celebration. Jesus Christ, our Lord, comes. Maranatha. It goes back to the earliest churches, Aramaic, and they were saying it all the way into the second century. Um, so what did the early church believe? What was the essence, the kerygma, the gospel? They believe that Jesus died and was buried, uh, that he rose from the grave and is coming again. That's in all the earliest church fathers. That's present in the New Testament as well as the first, second, and third century. Please click again. All right, so then the question comes. The question may come. All right, so let me... Go on, and we'll catch up when we can. So um, what happened, and how do we measure? All right, what, again, what's the yardstick? Let me repeat that. The yardstick is if the apostles believe and practice it, then we ought to believe and practice it as well. We call that a hermeneutic, a, a measuring stick. Um, sometimes, in fact, if you read my life, death, and the end of the world, I have a scene from the early church, late first century, early second century, uh, and just how much they talked about the coming of the Lord. And you can know this from reading these early church fathers. But something happened over the course of a couple of centuries, and, and the church forgot its own story. The church forgot its own story. Now, when I went to Temple University, they, uh, they had a, a, a theory 
uh, that Christianity was created because there's this big crisis because Jesus, they said he was coming and they said he was coming and he didn't come and that's a big crisis and that's what created the institutional church. Problem that didn't last very long is because there was never a crisis. There was never a crisis. There's no historical record of a crisis. The first people that started doubting tribulation, antichrist, millennium, uh, all the things that you read in the book of Revelation, these were people that came into the church in the second half of the, uh, the second century and then in the third century. There's a guy by the name of Clement of Alexandria who allegorized the text. There's another guy more famously by the name of Origen, and he took prophecy and he sort of just made it be what he wanted it to be. He had some crazy ideas, and they all primarily came from... Um, the plat plat Platonism and all of those kinds of things. And so he took his beliefs and said, well, if the Bible doesn't quite match up with it, then we'll just, allegory. it kind of must mean this and that, turn it this and that way and that way. He was the first one to do that, but he was a really big gun in church history. Two reasons it's changed. First was philosophy. The second was politics. Politics and religion really don't mix that much. And typically when they do, religion is somewhat the loser of that, often gets co-opted. Um, and I know some Christians and even uh, um, uh, some apostolic people who are doing a great job and you're called to do that. But here is what happened, uh, and you know the story, probably historically, how that the church was persecuted by Rome but then with the advent of Constantine, he was converted, became the first Christian emperor, and then all of a sudden, uh, if you wanted to have the favor of the emperor, you too would become a Christian. There was a guy by the name of Eusebius, and he uh, was paid by the government to write the history of Christianity. He was also paid by the government to write a very fawning biography of Constantine. Um, and so he changed things up a little bit, whereas before the church always identified the beast of Revelation with Rome, now Rome was the guy, Rome was the thing that was empowering the church. So it turns around. The guy who sealed the deal was a guy by the name of Augustine. Augustine lived in the 4th and 5th century, and he basically is the father of Catholic theology and really the father of theology for many groups, and he basically said, you can't trust the book of Revelation. Uh, when it says, and for example, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, and they lived, uh, Zoe, the re they were resurrected, he said, well, that means they were uh, converted. And when it says Satan was uh, bound for a thousand years, he goes, um, well, yeah, but and, and, and that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Well, that means he's ruling and reigning through the church leaders, which is us. Uh, we'll, so we'll tell you allegorically what the text means. And he essentially did away with much of what we have uh, in the book of Revelation. The tradition for the Antichrist was so strong, he couldn't get rid of the Antichrist. And so all that was left was just judgment coming. And by that time, purgatory had become a deal. So if you... If you died, you probably weren't going to go to heaven. You're going to go to purgatory. And if you lived, all you had to look forward to was judgment. So it's dark ages. 
Uh, it's not politically correct to call it that, but it truly was. Amen. Um, there's a guy by the name of Grant Walker, and he is a scholar of modern Pentecostalism, and he had a theory which was accepted by all of, of the academy, and this is what he said. What caused Pentecostalism, what caused Pentecostalism was that a group of people began to believe against what history had taught and what the church history had taught, that Jesus Christ was coming soon. I thought, well, if that's true, then it's got to be that he's going to early reign, latter reign. He's going to do some stuff. He's going to do stuff that he hasn't done since the beginning, and they began anticipating, well, what would it be like to be part of the bride of Christ? I think you'd need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? One thing leads to another, and that was the... Uh, morphing of the hunger for what God could do. And it was the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, a movement now where hundreds and hundreds of millions of people identify or have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so it was a turn back to the biblical text that's part and parcel of the time in which we live. So that's all you get. The rest has to be coming through questions and answer. You ask the question, and I'll try to give an answer. Uh, wave a microphone so they know who to ask. There's a microphone over there, and there's a microphone over there. So uh, someone has to start, be the first to ask, and then I'll give a less than three-minute answer, and then we can go on to the next. We can get a lot of questions in. It can be on the book of Revelation. On the... All right, we got a first question. They're coming with the microphone. Revelation 11, uh, there are two uh, witnesses that are slain in the streets of Jerusalem, and the Bible says that nations, tongues, and kindreds shall see them, which infers many, many people see them. That seems real impractical in the old, uh, old times. Seems much more practical in our time today with television, internet, etc. Do you, when you read the book of Revelation, do you see other places? where it seems much more plausible today that things like Re in what Revelation could happen. Yes. Because it's very imagery-driven and sure. figurative and things like that. Sure, that's a great question. So, uh, for example, Revelation chapter 13, you have the beast. And the beast is both the empire that's evil and it's also the individual that's over uh, the beast. There's a second beast and that we identified later on as a false prophet who can call on fire from heaven and given power to create this image that people are going to worship and all who dwell on the earth will worship. So you have the introduction of a false uh, religious system and then you have he controls the currency so that all who dwell on the earth are going to have to swear allegiance. And you say, well, how could that happen? Well, before now, before the monetary system has come together the way it is, it wouldn't have been possible. And like you say, how could all the earth worship a single image? Well, there, so you have a false religious system, you have a monetary kind of system, and you have all of that. So there's, there's a lot that's practically only possible in the world in which we live today. Thanks for that great question. I hope that's uh, salt in the oats so we uh, can't lead a horse to the water, but we can salt the oats. Okay. We've got questions coming. They're coming by the thousands. 
Following up on uh, Brother Gaddy's question about the, the three and a half days lying dead, from a historicist perspective, I have been taught that that represents three and a, the, on the day year principle, that that represents the, I believe it was the ninth session of the Fourth Lateran Council when all opposition had been quieted in the, in the Catholic Church. Three and a, a half years later, on October 31st, Martin Luther taxed his 95 theses. That's when the church, it appeared to me from history, starts coming out of the Dark Ages. So I'd like your thoughts on what appears to be, a, I guess, somewhat radical historicist opinion of what I've just cited. All right, thank you. Um, so let me give some background here. There are different ways of viewing the book of Revelation. Um, some would view the book of Revelation as um, what's stated historicist, that it came through uh, certain history and so on and so forth. I, I took seven years to uh, write this book. I thought I was going to write it real quickly. You know, my grandfather, he was a prophecy teacher. I'm like, oh, I'll just, but you have to kind of know a lot to, to say a little. And so I took an entire year to, to track through all the various ways, uh, particularly the historicist position of, of how um, Revelation has been interpreted. Now, let me say a couple things here. Uh, we can have differences, and we, if we all interpreted every verse together in the book of Revelation, some of us wouldn't be thinking. And if, if you are a uh, pastor or preacher or something, you're probably going to have a different perspective uh, of this or that verse. And, and I, I, sometimes you study and you have a different perspective than you did before. Uh, I thank you for that, and it, it may well be. It is historicist. But I, um, the way that I interpret uh, Revelation is the way they started doing it in the 1800s that kept setting up this last day revival. Uh, they turned from a historicist position to a futurist position. The book of Daniel says, uh, and I realize I've got a minute and a half because I'm, I'm going to keep it under three minutes. The book of Daniel says that this, the book would be shut up until the end and then it would be turned. It was in the 1800s that they began to say, well, maybe this is future and maybe Jesus Christ is coming soon. In 1830 was the first message in tongues. The message in tongues in the interpretation, modern day, was Jesus Christ is coming soon. It was the last two decades of the uh, 19th century that you have um, people saying he could come any time, speaking of the coming of the Lord and, uh, and a hunger for the church. So it was that turn to a futures position that I believe was the cause, at least Grant Wacker would say it, of the Pentecostal movement. So that would be, you, you certainly could hold a historicist position, but that would be my position on that. So uh, I would be more prone to take that as, as a literal three and a half days. Thank you for the question. Um, we have competing microphones here. It's like quizzing whoever gets the buzzer first. Am I next? Um, in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy in 4 and 2, mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot now of Christians that have been professing Christianity and now letting 
things interfere with having a form of godliness and denying the yes and they're and they're um it's like their conscience is being seared i keep seeing that more and more and hearing about it more and more we as the followers of jesus christ how do we how are we able to approach them and let them know that yes these people are being loved it's we're they're being deceived without Staying on the truth of God. Do you understand sure. kind I of what I'm I saying? I think I understand the question. Thank you for... Because uh, I have many people that I know... Yes, ...that absolutely. are struggling with this. Yes. All right, let me just tell you... Uh, We're getting very close to the end. Amen. Let me just tell you what... Uh, where Christianity's going. Uh, they're doing what they call reader response, or uh, it, it's just postmodern thinking i'm going to start with what i think the text means and what's socially acceptable and then i'll read back into it once you do that you've given up the store particularly when the culture says the only real sin is to judge somebody else so let's all kumbaya come together buddhists have a notion of a messiah islam has a notion of a messiah uh the 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 pope is basically saying, let's all get together here. And if you don't believe the Bible, well, it culturally kind of makes sense. So I do believe we're living in the last days. And I think that if you give up, that's why this is so powerful what you're doing in the church here, having a revival of the word of God, because you're grounding yourself for truth in a world that doesn't know what's true anymore. Amen. Yes. Okay, so that's a big question. I have to, we have to do with JWs, and we've got to do with all kinds of things. And you've got a mom question. Uh, moms are tough because you just have to, you have to love your mom, and and so yeah. So there's a lot of questions here. The the New Testament is very heaven centric. Paul writes to the book in the book of Philippians. He says. Um, about these people they're no longer following, uh, whose God is their belly, who, whose uh, destruction is assured. This is Philippians chapter 3. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we all also we look for the coming. Uh, we eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able to do all things. Yes. You know, the songbooks, the old songbooks, I counted them, fourth of them were about heaven, and about Jesus Christ coming. Now, we, of course, we use the screen, and i, I got nothing against that. I'm not trying to pull back the old songbooks. But the songs we share with the world, um, the religious world, the charismatic, Pentecostal world, evangelical world, if you notice, they, they've often stripped out any of the coming of the Lord stuff. 
And so um, thankfully, we've had, recently had some songwriters to write stuff, and other people have written stuff, and I'm thankful for the revival of talking about heaven and the coming of the Lord. Lex, Lex Arendi, Lex Credendi, what you sing is what you believe. Um, so, you know, I could give you a list to give your mom about heaven, but um, you just got to love your mom. And the J.W. just punch him in the nose. That's all you need to do. <laughs> don't punch him in the nose. Really don't. That was a joke. Yes, sir. I, I have a question. Uh, so we're talking about revelations. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the Dome of the Rock was built in, I believe it's the 8th or 9th century after the Arabics came up out of Saudi Arabia and overtook Jerusalem. Um, and then in 1095, Urban II launched the Crusades and retook back Jerusalem around the turn of the 11th century. Will the Dome of the Rock be destroyed and Solomon's Temple be rebuilt back on the old Temple Mount? Is that discussed in Revelations? How will that unfold out? How does that line up with, uh, I believe it's called the abomination of desecration or desecration of the abomination where they're re-sacrificing the yes. lambs and all that stuff. Yes. Okay, so uh, the Temple will be rebuilt. That's for sure. How will it be rebuilt? There's some questions about it. Uh, I have seen, or I've talked to people who said there are plans in place. You could create the temple there and still have the Dome of the Rock. There are certainly a lot of people who want to get rid of the Dome, uh, dome of the Rock. Um, so how it will be, I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, and at the second half of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will essentially set himself up in the temple as God, showing himself that he is God. It's, it's, it's drawing from Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. So that's going to take place. Uh, how that will work, there's different ideas about it, but there will be a temple. The temple will be rebuilt. some things that that you've seen that excite you the most and maybe some things that you feel that are yet to develop that must develop that we could be looking for you know to create some excitement hey this has already happened and I feel that this is definitely you know tangible evidence of the soon coming or does that, that make sense would you mind giving us some of your thoughts on what you feel those are? Uh, the analogy is, uh, how do you uh, cook a frog in boiling water? And you uh, turn the water up very slowly, and his muscles, uh, they're, they're okay. So uh, I've got a book from World War One that shows all the signs of like a, the next war, the cannon could shoot 40 miles. You know, all these signs of the times why we should be preparing for Jesus Christ to come. Well, think about a couple of things here. The world can destroy itself many times over since it's been in, your, in our lifetime that we've seen what could be the pictures of the book of Revelation and the, uh, this, this, this guy being rolled back like a scroll and all of those things could be represented there. Um, I do believe the fig tree is Israel. So in Matthew 24, uh, if you study uh, the, the land of Israel, 
now and how it came into being. Uh, this, you know, nations do not reinvent themselves. You don't have a dead language come to life. You don't have like millions of people against you all around you and then you just, oh yeah, well, that's what happened. But when you look at the success of things, I, I think that's key. When you look at the speed of things, uh, Daniel uh, 12.4, when the, when the book is on seal, uh, many will run to and fro, knowledge shall increase. All right, think about computers. Um, all the world's knowledge could be held in a library, and now uh, thumb drive, you know, it's just like anything you want to know, I'll just look it up, I'll just ask Siri, you know, and, 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 and they used to say knowledge is increasing every three years, every hour, uh, uh, you know, year and a half, and now we can't even measure it, uh, how it's going. Um, there's a lot of wickedness. The, there's a uh, concerted effort to destroy God's creation, humans, from being what they are, transhumanism, and all of the other weirdness that's going on in the world today. That you, you would, if you would have said 15 years ago, this is where the culture is going, and you, you, they, they would laugh at you. But the world has changed so drastically. But sometimes, because we're in, it's the air we breathe. We, we forget that when you see these things begin to come to pass, look up, lift up your head, because your redemption is drawing near. Um, it's, you know, it's not a fearful thing. Comfort with one another, but it compels us. Well, what, what is it you want me to do, Lord, in the time that we have left? Okay. Pastor has a question. The three main tribulation um, viewpoints that I can see is the rapture of the church uh, before the tribulation, uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation, mid-trib mid or post-trib at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, without sounding crass, does that matter when that happens? And that's not meant to be because that's my viewpoint, but I have friends that all over the spectrum on when the rapture will happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll say yes and I'll say no and so on, but let me, let me try to give you the yes first, or let me give you the no first. Lutherans don't believe in a rapture. They've never heard of rapture. Catholics, because of Augustine, don't believe in rapture. Reformed Presbyterians don't even know anything about rapture. So the larger part, the swath of Christendom, doesn't believe in any of the events that we believe are future in the book of Revelation. And so when we say, well, it's, it's three and a half years or seven years, they, they look at it like, well, you're, you're kind of arguing in a thimble, you know, because you're just really talking about the timing. So that's doesn't matter. Let me flip the does matter side. If you believe Jesus Christ is coming before the tribulation period, before the wrath of God, that's, that's a one kind of thing. But if you believe that you're going to live through that, that's another kind of set of answers you have to answer. Will I be compelled uh, to make a choice of taking the mark of the beast? I'll give you my opinion. This is the Dave Norris opinion. Uh, and, and so... Here's, here's what I found. I found like 
a dozen scriptures. It's not a one-time proof text, but it's again and again, where it says that God has not appointed us to wrath. First Thessalonians 5, 9. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, and it's, you heard how we won these people and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5, 9, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Uh, we're not appointed to that wrath. And Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 5 and 6, the same thing. Um, you've got the book of Revelation chapter uh, 3 and verse 10. Because you kept my command to persevere, also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those upon the earth. Now I realize that people have different opinions on that. And so you could believe, well, the wrath doesn't come to the middle or... Maybe it's just coming right before, all that sort of thing. But that's a pretty substantial promise. And uh, I, so my belief is that the, the church will be raptured prior to that time. But yes, in some ways, consider the largest view of Christianity, be ready. That should be the message uh, for the church. All right, bring it on. Thank you. So basically, um, all the symbols and many of the symbols in Revelation actually are drawn from Old Testament texts. So sometimes you have to go back to the Old Testament text and get the original sort of context. Uh, Daniel 7 is uh, all these four successive beasts that represent empires. Uh, and so the imagery of the beast in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, comes from Daniel 7. Uh, then I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns on his uh, horns, crowns on his heads of blasphemy. And, uh, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like a feet of bears, a mouth like a, lion, a mouth of lion. That all comes from Daniel 7. Um, the dragon gave him his power and authority. And I saw one of his heads that had been mortally wounded, and, and the deadly one was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So it's both an empire, but then it winds up morphing into the person that's in charge of that. And, and John would call that in his epistles the Antichrist. Um, the, the beast language is revelation. But when you read the chapter, it's clearly an individual who's taken control of the monetary system and the religious system and causes all who dwell on the earth to worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, same for the foundation of the world. So the beast in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 13 is explained in the context of the chapter. Yes, uh, well, there's several hands, so yes. You don't mind if I ask a second question, do you? Uh, second, well, yes. Oh, yeah, no, go ahead. Okay. Do you see the United States playing a pretty substantial part in the book of Revelations? Are we considered one of these areas being in the United States? Yes, and it, I, 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 yes, I'm answering that question. Especially uh, in the world, one world government. Yes, I'm, I'm going to do my best to answer that question. There are some prophecy teachers who uh, might say something like, well, the lion, that's, isn't that the symbol of Great Britain? And the, and the bear, isn't that sound like what Russia is, a big bear? And, 
And so sometimes people can find us in uh, prophecy. Uh, when you go back to the original vision, though, there was a specific context of, of empires that it was about, and so it's, it's harder to find us in that context. Now, you can say, well, we're part of the Western world, and this, this is a Western alliance and all of that, but, um, I, you know, some people either for hope or condemnation either think that the United States is the beast or they think that uh, we'll help people escape the beast, whatever. I don't really find a clear symbolism in Scripture. Um, doesn't mean we won't be here, but uh, um, our hope is not in the United States. Our, our hope is in the Lord. Amen. Yes. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. That's Revelation 21. We also have new earth language in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. My grandfather, as you know, had a particular teaching about the new earth. And I, I studied where he got it. I went back. It goes all the back, way back to G.T. Haywood. When G.T. Haywood was trying to make sense, he, he got it through Witherspoon and Witherspoon got it through Haywood. When Haywood was trying to make sense of like, okay, I was with this fellowship of, of people that were Pentecostals, and then I found this revelation. Am I going to just put them in hell, or what do I do? And he was making a, an effort to figure out uh, in the end time where uh, all these things uh, would be. And so he would use uh, Revelation 22.11. Uh, um, he who is unjust, let me unjust still. He is filthy, let me filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. He is holy, let him be holy still. And he uh, would say, well, the holy people, that's the blood-bought, uh, one God, tongue-talking, apostolic, holy Ghost, holy people, uh, are in heaven, and then, um, then the rest will be on the new, new earth. Uh, Haywood actually... Did a, 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 another thing, which was really interesting to me. He and he used e, Enoch for this, but he, he he said that it was like 365 years or days, I can't remember which, and then they would also be allowed in heaven, so on and so forth. Um, is there a new earth where 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 God has a place for people? Um, could be. Uh, could it be that the righteous go to the new earth and, and uh, the people that are uh, blood-bought and have the name go to heaven? Could be. Um, but sometimes, though, righteous and holy get blended together in ways that aren't quite so distinct. And so uh, when you start trying to make that a consistent sort of doctrine in the biblical text, it just it gets very difficult to do that. Although... Uh, I'm not telling you, well, this one is going to do this or that. Uh, ultimately, it's the same thing you have to do when you do a funeral of a baby or somebody you don't know. You say, well, we have a good God and a God who judges well. We know the Bible. The Bible's good news. We share the good news, and the rest we leave up to God. So that would be my take on that.
I don't like talking to mics. Um, so in the book of Revelation, I've heard a, quite a few people say that, you know, the rapture is going to happen because you don't hear about the church after Revelation chapter 3. But in Revelation chapter 13, it says that, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. So the Antichrist is going to make war with us. So that's something that we're going to have to go against in these last days, which he already is. Um, and not only that, also, in, um, when the children of Israel were delivered out of the land of Egypt, they still were there during the plagues. God didn't take them completely away out of it. And actually, I think three of them, they did have to. So there build. is a question, right? And that's the question. Okay. So that's a question of, you know, whether... Um, and I forgot it because I wasn't talking too much. But um, So about the saints in Revelation 13, right, who if, are if they? We're actually going to go through the tribulation yeah, so because we, the plagues, you know, in the book of Revelations that are going to come upon the world when the children of Israel went through the plagues also, but God, they were protected, you know. Right. So are we going to be protected? Right. You know, I understand the question. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, let me just start with typology. Um, people say, well... This type proves this, and this type proves that. So the type of uh, the children of Israel going through the uh, plagues in the land of Egypt, that demonstrates that the church will go through uh, the tribulation and suffer some, but then be protected or whatever. Uh, but there are also types of um, Noah and the ark going above the... And so for, for every type, we can find another type that's doing something else and so I believe types can affirm a doctrine, but I don't think we can make a doctrine uh, on, on types. Could be that the saints are in the tribulation. Could be that they're fighting the Antichrist and so on. But there's another possibility, and that is that there are people, even in the tribulation period, who are coming to the Lord. Um, we find, for example, in the book of Romans, chapter 11, where it's talking about Israel. Um, so all, this is Romans 11, 25 and 26. Uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And then all Israel will be saved. There's going to be a revival that will bring that blinded group back to the Lord. And many people see the book of Revelation as part of that. We also see, um, so I believe, here's what I believe about the two witnesses. I believe the two witnesses are there and they are a, a part and parcel of the revival that's coming. I believe the sealed tribes in Revelation chapter 7 are, are part of revival. Even in the worst of times, God can still uh, reach people. So saints are holy ones. Um, we've taken the modern construct of the word saints, and we've said, well, that has to be like people in this church. Well, it, could, it is. People are in this church, but it could be anyone who is a believer at, at that time. So, yeah, that could be. Um, but it could be something else as well. And I thank you for the question. Yes. Will we have bodies like Adam and Eve had before they partake of the fruit, essentially immortal bodies? Um, or, or we would be like celestial entities. And also, uh, with definitions, do you see heaven and the New Jerusalem as one and the same as we would see hell and the lake of fire? Are they two separate entities? Okay. That might test my three-minute uh, thing, but I'll give it my best. 
<laughs> uh, we, are, we are body, soul, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. So when you die, your body dies, and your soul, spirit, that spiritual entity, lives on. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We, there's still more that's going to come because we'll have a resurrected body. Uh, and so, but yet, where Jesus is, that's heaven. But heaven is not all that heaven will be. Uh, so I quoted it earlier. Let me reference it again. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 uh, I believe it's verse 21, uh, who will transform our lowly body that may be conformed to his glorious body. So what was Jesus like when he resurrected? He was uh, a human being. He was, it's not simply uh, he ate, he, 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 he said, touch me and see, all those kinds of things. So whatever Jesus was. First um, John 3, you know, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. So we'll, I believe we'll really have bodies and that will be bodies that will never die. They'll be eternal, they'll be incorruptible, they'll be immortal. Um, so yeah, that's my three minute answer. Oh yeah. So what, yes, here's the other three minutes. What was it again, Remember, remind me. There was uh Okay. Okay, so uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, uh, you have the final judgment, what we sometimes call the white throne judgment, where everybody's judged, the final judgment. And then it says in uh, verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Um, some would liken it to the difference between being in the county jail before you're finally sentenced to the penitentiary. I mean, if it's fire, it's fire, it's fire. Lake of fire is permanent. Um, and the book of Revelation uses hell and death in different ways. Um, they're personified in different ways. It's like a demon that's over them. But, but clearly, it's talking about a permanence uh, and so on. Um, as far as heaven is concerned, um, you have um, the book of Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse 2, the holy city coming down uh, from, from God, and it's just these incredible dimensions. Um, and it's going to be somehow connected with, like you say, a new earth, a reconstituted earth. Uh, and uh, so I would say uh, that that literally is heaven, that we should have a heavenward focus. But I would also say you're right in that this is going to be this whole new creation that takes place. Uh, and it's going to be incredible. Uh, that is beyond what we have now. So uh, the... The key focus in Revelation, you have this uh, city uh, in Revelation 21, he measures with the reed 12,000 furlongs, uh, and you have uh, the Lord reigning. That's, that seems to be a key feature, 
and it's, it, you have some morphing here with the city of Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem and how it all works together. People kind of go different ways on that. Um, but that clearly is um, the special place prepared and where, where God will, uh, where Jesus Christ will reign. So that's, that's my other three minutes. Got a question back there. I have to have a microphone because I'm, I'm not a loudspeaker. But uh, so one of my one of my first questions, well, my first question right now is in uh, Luke 17 and, and 26. Um, I believe you temporarily uh, referenced it, but I've I've heard some people kind of reference um, as it was in the days of Noah. Uh, I believe it says, "So shall it be uh, when the Son of Man." And I've even heard men relate to as in the days of Noah and, and Enoch as well as referencing Enoch as, as being translated. So I'm, I'm not too certain, but I've heard that one represents us Gentiles and another one represents uh, the Jews. And so I just kind of wanted to see your take on, on Luke 17 and uh, that chapter and uh, that verse. And then I, I kind of wanted to paired into what I was saying with the Jews as well. Uh, what do you foresee as the importance of the Jews uh, during the, the tribulation and the rapture? Okay. Um, let me start backwards on that. Let me talk about the Jewish people, and then I'll kind of wander back into uh, the book of Luke. Some people say, well, if there's a millennium, what's it for? It just seems like a thousand years or like what is it like God's going to time out church and I'm going to fulfill all my promises to the Jewish people here's what I believe about the kingdom of God in the book of Isaiah it says the kingdom of God increases that is to say it only gets better and greater and greater so it's not like I'm turning the church and I'm turning the Jews it's that the the promises to the Jews are going to be fulfilled because they're now added to the kingdom of God and they finally see the Messiah, and the, and the kingdom of God gets greater and greater. I believe the millennium uh, is going to, a lot of prophecies that we have are actually millennial prophecies. Joel 2 and some others. I, I do this thing in the book on double fulfillment, but they kind of wash back on the church. So we, ha we do have the spirit. But I think the difference between the spirit in the church age and the spirit in the millennium is like we're drinking a glass of water now, and it'd be like we're swimming in it. Imagine Jesus literally ruling and reigning. It's going to be like the coolest thing ever. On Luke 17, I'm not sure who the Jew and who the Gentile is. Is Enoch the one? Or? I, I was trying to follow it. I, um, I so, probably answered the wrong thing. No, it? no, no. You're, you're okay. So um, I, wish I, I wish I could remember exactly, but uh, I, I didn't know if you had heard of that. Um, that case or not of between Enoch and and um, uh, Noah, I, I I would assume, based on what I've heard, uh, without knowing for surely that um, the the Jews would be a type of of Noah because they they get preserved through the flood, mm -hmm. and then I I would think maybe that the Gentiles would be. Um, a type of Enoch that would just be would be translated or would be would be uh, would be caught away, I guess. Which that's a okay, premillennialism so outlook. Okay, so so it would be 
the fact that the Jews are going to have to suffer during the tribulation, would, which would really be, because actually there, there are no Jews yet until you get to Abraham and so on and so forth. So I understand what you're saying. So then it's a typology thing, right? Okay, and I'm saying, okay. Again, remember what I said about typology. It could be. Uh, I'm not going to go down on the mat on it, but uh, yeah. Yes. Got another question. You talked tonight about living in the shadow of the coming of the Lord, which should affect the way that we live our daily lives. And so I know you've written the book uh, with that kind of idea. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your book, why we might want to purchase it? And then also I know that here we are a few minutes tonight uh, kind of stirring up our curiosity, which is wonderful. Can you point us to, to some other resources maybe authors, online stuff that might uh, help us to continue to live uh, our lives in the shadow of the coming of the Lord. Well, thank you for that uh, setup there. I just, uh, just happened to want to talk about my book. Um, I'm concerned uh, when 18-year-olds, I, I teach graduate students at the UGST. We have 100 students. I have 28 in my systematic theology class, and most of them are distant. A lot of them are pastors. Then I also teach 18-year-olds. Uh, we get them when they first walk in the door. And um, I was talking to Brother Gaddy today, just passionate about the Lord. But uh, they don't care about the coming of the Lord because they never sang about it. And I'm like, Lord, we, we, we got to... It only takes one generation to lose... Uh, to lose the truth. So that was uh, what made me passionate about that. Um, so the other thing is, uh, sometimes you write a book for you and you just hope someone finds some readership in there. And I just like, uh, after a while, you, I got to know. I know so-and-so teaches this and so-and-so teaches this, but I got to know. So uh, you read my book, and uh, I will be happy if you agree with stuff. But if you find different ways and opinions, uh, it's not attempting to be the last word. It's just trying to steer us back in the right direction. So I, I, I'm not saying it's the do-all, end-all. But uh, there's a lot of stories in there. Um, I... Oh, wait, let me do this. As long as we're talking stories and as long as I'm hawking my books, I want to read this. This is completely not from a question that's asked, but I'm going to take three minutes. This is the beginning of my book, Acts 2.38. The man says to me, so you don't agree with the book then? Uh, no, I respond. How'd you know? He explains, well, you interrupted your humming by saying, I don't think so. The speaker is to my left, another man sits to uh, the right of me, gazing out the window down to the fruited plain some 30,000 feet beneath us. The three of us will be sandwiched together in these seats for another 59 minutes. It's not something I'm happy about. Already emotionally spent from a prolonged speaking engagement, I have no desire to be around these people, or any people for that matter. I escape by reading. I hum when I read. I also talk to myself, sometimes even talk back to the book. Apparently, I was doing all three when I caused the disturbance. 
Sorry, I say to the man on my left, hoping that'll be the end of it. He's friendlier than I deserve and glances at my book. Looks like some pretty heavy reading. I nod, look back down to the page, signaling the end of our conversation. Yet it is not to be. He says, uh, so you're a teacher then. I reluctantly acknowledge this to be true. Further prodding reveals that I teach in a United Pentecostal Church seminary. He then gives me his name and shakes my hand. Turns out he is, in fact, a pastor. Also turns out he is troubled by my denomination, or at least by one particular teenage girl who calls our denomination her home. So I rent in our gym to this UPC group, real nice kids, he says, and I'm talking to one of the girls about what they believe. Suddenly he interrupts his own story and blurts out, let me ask you, do you believe that you don't speak in tongues, you're going to hell? Because that's what this girl said. I pause, surprised by a sudden pronouncement, and offer sincerely, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yes, but is that what you believe? I really need to know. Up to this point, I have no opinion of the man sitting next to me, but now I'll look at him in a more discerning way. He's bright eyes, a kind voice. More than that, he's a person on a quest, looking for specific answers. He doesn't want to argue. He simply wants to understand. I decide at once that I like him and belatedly offer up a genuine smile. I pause, trying to frame what to say first. Then I begin by asking him about the church he pastors. It's Baptist. And yes, he's been there a while. And yes, he really enjoys pastoring. He remains friendly, but clearly wants to return to the subject at hand. As I pause, he waits for my response. The answer I give the pastor that day forms the basis of this book. Sort of. Unfortunately, when I talk, my mind takes mental journeys. Fortunately, such excursions help me to recall important facts. Unfortunately, this illumination comes in cryptic snapshots. Fortunately, I can make sense of these to the reader through a longer narrative. Hence, this book is full of stories. Pentecostals talk a lot about the book of Acts, I hear myself saying in my teacher's voice, even though I want to be conversational. My new minister friend is kind enough to listen anyway. I continue. Importantly, the narrative of Acts cannot be understood apart from the rest of the biblical text. He tilts his head, listening intently. Now I make a big claim. The Bible is really one big story, the story of redemption. Like every other story, it has a beginning and an ending, as well as a definite turning point, the climax to the narrative. He nods in agreement until I make the next statement. I say, well, most people think the climax of the story is when Jesus died on the cross. That's not quite right. Really? He muses, doubtful, though reserving judgment. I say from a literary perspective, the turning point of the Bible culminates in the book of Acts on the birthday of the church. I continue. I would go further. I believe the story reaches its zenith in a single verse of Scripture. All right, he says, waiting for my proposal. I would contend that rightly understood, the focal point of the whole Bible comes in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Well, you're going to have to prove it to me, he says, though not closed in new information. I nod and say, first I need to explain the whole point of Jesus' ministry. It's pretty plain in Scripture, but most people pass right over it. I have his attention now and pause to consider how best to proceed. Although the stated purpose of Jesus' ministry is plain in Scripture, people have difficulty understanding it. The worst time I ever had explaining this was when I was teaching in Kyrgyzstan. I smile as I remember it. Next chapter goes to Kyrgyzstan.
Three-minute commercial. Uh, I forgot what I was answering even, so... Uh, I'm, So the question is twofold. Will there be chocolate in heaven? And that actually is in uh, one of the chapters in the book, the theological question of whether there will be chocolate in heaven. My wife, um, my wife, so she's, we were a substitute teacher. So like this past Wednesday, the seven to nine-year-olds were teacher was missing, so we taught them. So this was, we were teaching, and the lesson happened to be on heaven. And so she's shopping at Aldi, and uh, she claims that a chocolate bar flew of its own accord out of a shelf into her shopping cart, and so she felt it was God's will So uh, so she started the class by telling the story, and, and she said, I, do you think there'll be chocolate in heaven? She said, I hope so. What do, would you want there to be in heaven? And these seven-year-olds, of course, they're not inhibited. They're just telling all the things that would be in heaven they would like to see. And uh, then she said, well, now let's draw a picture of it, and you can tell a story about it. So sometimes we come theologically to things like, tell me the concrete things here, that, and the other thing. Would you tell me this, that, and the other? And, uh, but sometimes Jesus told the greatest eternal truths by telling a story. And uh, wove one story after another. So I think we have to use our imagining when we really think about heaven. The best that this world has to be um, is only just a glimmer and a kind of type of what will be. We were uh, we do grief share at the, the church, and one of the widows said, "Will I be married in heaven?" You know, will I? All that's the question, and that's a tough one because you're really dealing with more than one thing here. You're dealing with the grief that's going on, and grief can do some strange things. You forget all the bad things. <laughs> you remember all the good things. Um, and so those kinds of questions. But, but the point of that is, is uh, whatever we, the greatest love that we can have in this life, the, the, the most, is only just a stepping stone. All the word pictures we can put together are only just a stepping stone to be, uh, to be what heaven will be like. I, I would say you can buy any book by any evangelical author on Heaven, I would say you can get books by Pentecostals, so on and so forth. But I would also tell you, eat the chicken, spit out the bones. Eat the chicken, spit out the bones. Um, you can believe different things, and there's a lot of speculation. And, and, and so long as you make it speculation and not a doctrine, you know, that's safer. Uh, I, so, uh, but don't let anybody steal your core beliefs. Keep your heart with all diligent 
for out of the, out of the issues of life, Proverbs says. So if something moves us away from heaven or moves us away from the reality of that, then it's one of those things we spit those bones out. Amen. All right, I uh, have uh, another question. I have another question. In the back there. Um, my question is about, you know, the concept of like now, but not yet. Yes. Um, and I know that's used in the New Testament, but it's also used in like Old Testament prophecy. Yes. With Isaiah, like he'll talk about how yes. Israel will be restored from exile and have a kingdom. But the one thing comes first, but the other thing doesn't come for a while. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, what was the last thing you said? Uh, Isaiah, how like... It, I got that, but the one thing comes from the what? No, like, they'll like mention a prophecy, and then there's like an immediate fulfillment, right. but then there's still like this ultimate, you know, messianic reign still to come. Absolutely. Um, do you think in Revelation that John um, is looking towards the Roman government of his own day while also looking towards the, you know, end-time Roman government as well? Like making parallels between them, or do you think it's yes. purely yes. future? Could you give like an example that you know of? Yeah. Um, so word pictures are uh, all over the book of uh, Revelation about the Roman government. In fact, uh, Jeff Brickle uh, teaches an entire course where the the fodder is. Then there's a number of good books written on this. Uh, will demonstrate. Uh, how the throne room scene, how the heavenly scene, how, how are, are oftentimes taking whatever they do uh, with the glory and splendor of Rome and then multiplying it and turn it into the true picture of who's ruling and who's reigning. So, yeah, I do think that. I think that Rome is, is ever-present in the book of Revelation. And uh, Rome was the immediate, just like in the Old Testament, who is the immediate enemy. And then they would see the cosmic day of the Lord. Uh, who is the immediate enemy? It's Rome. And then you see the cosmic day of the Lord in the same pattern as the Old Testament prophets. Brother Norris, if, if you were pastoring now and seeing what you've said tonight about we've gotten away from talking about this and teaching the coming of the Lord. Uh, how would you go about it if you were pastoring now to um, get the church that you pastor back on track? I know you've mentioned music. I know a lot of times when we preach on the coming of the Lord, it comes across judgmental and negative, trying to get people ready. How would you approach it in a more positive way? Not that that's... No, I understand. Yeah, thank you. It used to be, we learned, you could have three points in a sermon. <laughs> I, I, I think that must be going on here. And I still believe in that. <laughs> that said, in a postmodern world, uh, young people don't need a setup. You, uh, 
Brother Kuhn said, here's the 20 sermons that you, these subjects have to be covered every year. Okay. Now, um, because on the internet they can surf and in a, in a single minute, they've, how many subjects have, and, and if, if you don't teach on the coming of the Lord, they're going to get that information from somebody. It's probably not going to be right. But it's kind of like holiness. It's not how many times you teach on holiness. It's not how loud you teach on holiness. People in the church know what you really believe, whether you're talking loud or soft. They know what you live. They, so the way that I, as a pastor, would teach on the coming of the Lord was I, I would model it. And then, even though I only got three points in a sermon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track on 10 different subjects in there. Pop, 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 pop. And I'm going to mention the coming of the Lord. So, uh, and it's not just the mention, it's do I believe it? Just like when you speak on holiness, it's not the number of times that you say it or how many, but they're like, who are you at your core? And so if, if it, it defines me as my core, then uh, yeah, I should plan to, to do it, this and that. But you don't need a prophecy series like for six months or something like that. I just, I think it just has to be part of the air that we breathe. Good question. Well, I'm, I've got just time for maybe one or two more, and I'm turning it back. Yes, all right. Brother Norris, I'd like your uh, thought on one scripture where the Lord, after telling about, this is in the uh, 13th chapter of Mark. Yes. After talking about the desolation and all that is coming, the terrible affliction such as never has been nor will be again, the Bible says, the Lord is speaking, saying, except the Lord shorten the days, no flesh should be saved. Uh, and then he says, um, but he will for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? And before you answer, I just want to give your book a plug. Okay. In February, I read your Acts 238 book. I loved it. I, I want to say your manner of presenting all that you presented in, in story form was just, it drew us in. Mm -hmm. And I, I really appreciated that book. Any of you would enjoy that book, Acts 238. I'll pay you later for that. <laughs> and now my uh, shortening the days. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you have it in Mark, and you also have it in uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 24, the same uh, language. Um, I'm not sure I can give you a three-minute answer on that, but uh, the uh, what's called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus spoke it on the Mount of Olives, has a sp it has several things that's going on there. The Lucan uh, parallelism is really talking about stuff that's going to happen in 70 AD. Uh, Matthew and Mark are more focused on the cosmic end. So it's, you know, Jesus can speak to more than one audience at one time. Uh, I think it's really talking about the tribulation because in 
the verse right before that in the Matthew text says there will be tribulations such as never been nor ever, ever more will be uh, in, in the world. So um, even though uh, the Lord does not delight in judgment, why is there judgment? He's judging so that he can cleanse the earth from, from the sin. He's, he's, he's going to make it new. So when we say the end of the world, it's the end of this age and it's the beginning of a new age. But even then there's mercy. Even then God is always reaching. There will be people that he'll reach in that most terrible time period in the whole world because he's just that kind of God. He's a God of love and mercy. Amen. Thank you for that question. And one last question. Here it is. And you're talking about the generation that's kind of lost the sense of heaven, the music or whatever, uh, would it not be just the same as they've lost the sense of hell? Because we live in a world where nobody wants to be told they've done anything wrong, they don't want to know any consequences for what they've done. And so I would think that, I'm not saying we should try, I don't think you can be scared into heaven. I don't, I really honestly don't believe that because I don't think you'll have a true love for Christ under that. But at the same time, I can't tell you when the last time I've heard a sermon on hell. And so just wondering if that could go hand in hand with trying to bring that back as well. Thank you. It's hard to preach on hell. Uh, because it's it's a terrible place and but if the bridge is out we should say so we're the watchman on the wall maybe we don't know how big the army is it's coming but there's something coming we got to say something um the generation that we have is because the culture says you shouldn't judge they have a hard time talking about hell they they know a lot of mercy though they know more about grace than we've ever understood uh, and they're passionate. So I don't think it's like a big correction. I think it's like when you, you're, you're, you just turn the wheel a little bit. And so I, I have incredible hope for the, the next generation. And I, I feel like they have the heart of the Lord. And I just want to be a part of what God is going to do in the, in the world in which we live. Thank you for all of your questions. It's been a delight to be here.